Great singing this morning. Thank you, Joel, uh, for leading us. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We're going to start in verse 7 before we do. Let's do a little bit of review. Uh, it's been a week with Easter here that uh, we haven't been in the book. So a little bit of review. Uh, if we had to come up with kind of two ideas of what Ephesians has been about so far in the first three chapters, I think we could hopefully come up with the word unity. Uh, that's been kind of coming back over and over again. Jews and Gentiles, one church together. Uh, we saw a lot of that last week, uh, last time we were in Ephesians. We'll talk about that before we dive into verse 7. I think the other one, hopefully, if we're going to come up with two, hopefully the other one is this idea of a new temple. This, this temple not made, made of stones in, in, in a building, but a people that God is bringing together to, to glorify his name. Right? So, so hopefully those are kind of the two takeaways from, from that long Ephesians 1 through Ephesians 3 discourse, kind of theological argument, if you will, that Paul lays forth. is unity in the church and that the church is this new temple that God is, is building, this people of God. Okay, so, so what does that mean then for us as we dive into Ephesians 4 and continue here? Uh, I'm just going to let you know that this, this idea of the people of God being a temple and, and how do we act and what do we do with being this temple, uh, that's going to come a little bit later. That's going to be next week and the weeks to follow of what this people of God should act like, what they should look like, what they should do. And so this morning, I might not sound like it at first, uh, but this morning we're going to hit a little bit more on this idea of unity. Okay, so, so just as a refresher, let's, let's go back to the, uh, we don't have to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 4. Let's go to verse 4. Paul gives us uh, this, this kind of reminder of why we can have unity. So Ephesians 4, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what do we see? We ended there last time in our study of Ephesians. So what's the idea? The idea is unity. Like we have all these things in common. All of these things are one. The body is one. Like the church is one. The people of God is one. And so unity, unity, unity. Like over and over again throughout the book of Ephesians, right? So uh, we get to verse 7, right? Let's, let's read the whole thing and then we'll dive into verse 7. Let's read our passage this morning. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ." from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. All right, so, so here we go. Let's dive in to this text this morning, verse 7. But, okay, uh, we're going to focus in on a couple words here. But's one of them, right? We've had unity, unity, unity. And so there's this thought of, I bet I know what unity is going to look like. And what Paul's actually going to do is he's going to use uh, seven and the couple following verses to kind of clarify what this unity looks like. It's going to be unity, but in our unity, it's not going to be uniformity, right? It's not going to be we all look exactly the same. So unity, unity, unity. But as we continue to talk about this unity, one God, one Lord, one, one faith, one baptism, all these things, there's going to be uh, something that might not look like unity. 
Right? So that's what he's... But here's this transition. To each one of us. Like, let's just pause there for a moment. This should stand out to us. From Ephesians 1.1 through Ephesians 4.6, what have we seen? We've seen this you plural. Like, you all, all y'all, you guys, you ins, whatever we would say from wherever we're from. Like, you plural. Every time. There's never been a singular you in the passage. And now we get to 4.7, and he says what? He says, to each one of us. Like, now there's this individual. Before, it's been people of God. It's been the church. It's been corporate. It's been together. And now, all of a sudden, Ephesians 4, verse 7, now it's this each one of us. Now there's this individual aspect. Okay? So unity together, people of God. Now there's an individual aspect. How do we each fit into the unity? How do we each fit into this people of God that that Paul's been talking about? Okay? Let's keep reading. But to each one of us, uh, grace was given. Okay, now, now we just sang a little bit about God's grace. Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about God's grace. Joel actually read Ephesians 2. We're going to go look back there real quick. Verse 8, we read verse 7. Uh, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. So, so when Paul says here, there's been grace given to you, some of, some of our minds are going to go directly to Ephesians 2, verse 8, and the salvation grace. Okay, has that grace been given to all of us if we're in Christ? The answer is yes. Right, for sure, no doubt about it. But, I, but from the context, I think it will become clearer. But I think uh, what Paul's saying here isn't necessarily Ephesians 2.8. I think what he's saying is Ephesians 3.2. So if you look at Ephesians 3, verse 2, you'll see the same word grace used again. But this is a different context. He says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me. That would be Paul. For you. Why did God give Paul this grace? Go, we can skip down to verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Why was, God, why was Paul given this grace from God so that he could take the message to the Gentiles? That you're a part of the church, that, that you get to be included in this, that, 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 that this new temple is being built up with Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so, so this grace given to us at salvation, Ephesians 2 I'm not denying that. Like, like we need that. Like we're celebrating that tonight in a baptism, that God's grace has extended to Leighton and Liam. Right? But there's also this idea of grace that God would give us post-conversion, if you will, to go live out this life that he's called us to live. And so Paul's saying, I experienced uh, grace once again, and this grace is so that I might take the good news to the Gentiles. So what does that mean? It means God's grace doesn't just leave us when we're saved. Right? It's not Ephesians 2.8, God saves you, and then he leaves you. He doesn't just save you and then say, go figure it out. No, he saves you, and then he continues to give you grace. Right, we're going to change this word from grace to something else here pretty quick in this passage. And, and you'll see that and, and we'll see how it all fits together, hopefully. But here's this grace, which was given to us according to what? According to the measure of Christ's gift. So here's grace from Jesus, uh, grace to the individuals in his church, this church that he is building. Okay, now verses 8 through 10, um, I, I just want to preface it with this. You could read 10 different commentaries and probably come up with three or four different ideas of what 8 through 10 means. Okay, as long as we all agree on big picture, then I'm cool with that, right? Like, like if you think the captivity taken captive, like if you think it's this and I think it's something else, I'm not worried about that. I'm just worried about us getting the main point of this passage. Okay, so your translation may word it differently. That makes you think something different than my translation. Your, your teaching when you grow up may sound differently than my teaching right now. I'm not worried at all about that. Okay, so that's just a little preface. What's the main idea? Let's read the verses. What's the main idea? Verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9. Now this expression, he ascended, what does also mean, except that he also descended into lower parts of the earth. 
He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Okay, 8 through 10, what's the point of this this little paragraph, uh, this little section here that Paul puts in? The point is this, victory. Jesus wins. That's the point. Okay, verse 8, he is quoting. If you write in your Bible, I encourage you to write in the margin of your Bible, Psalm 68. That's, that is what he's quoting in, in verse 8. He's quoting Psalm 68. And what is Psalm 68? It's this beautiful poem, uh, this beautiful psalm about how God wins. Like, the, God is victorious. And so, so, 8 through 10, he wins. He ascends. Like, like, if you ascend, if you get to ascend up to heaven, if you conquer sin, death, and hell, and ascend at the end of that, you're victorious. Like, you did not lose. Right? And so, so there's this overarching picture that God wins, that Jesus wins. He has won this for us. Okay, let's dive into a little bit more of this stuff. Okay, so verse 8, uh, he quotes Psalm 68, he ascended on high. That's probably not too hard for us to understand. Uh, we know at the end of his life, he ascends up to heaven. Uh, disciples watch that. Acts talks about that. Okay, ascension, right? We get to this next phrase. He led captive a host of... Of captives, okay? This is going to be a couple different interpretations, but again, we know the big picture. What's the big picture? That Jesus wins, right? So, so however you would interpret this, uh, as long as it shows that Jesus wins in the end, I'm not going to argue about it, okay? But here's the two different arguments. I'm not going to tell you where I land. I'll just give you the two, okay? Uh, the first one, he left captive, a host of captives. Some people would take that as, as, as Jesus goes to how far do I want to go down this road? Uh, Jesus would take those who belong to him, who are in prison, and he would release them out of captivity. Okay, so if you were thinking, like, here's a victorious king marching into the city, think Palm Sunday, like, here comes a king coming in, who would be behind this king? If he just went to battle and he just won, who's behind him? Those who are part of his kingdom who have been kept in captivity. And they would be walking in behind this victorious king. So some people would take that as the picture. Like he has gone in and he has taken back what is rightfully his. They were prisoners of war, however you want to word that. They were taken captive and he is bringing them in in victory. Okay? Uh, the other way that people think of this it would be uh, if you were a victorious king and you marched into a city, you might have people that, that you rescued that were part of your kingdom that came with you. But you also might have what? You might have your own prisoners of war. You might have the enemy that you have conquered that you are now bringing in and you have taken captive those who, who took your people captive. Right? So those are the two ideas. But again, what's the point? What, what's the picture? The picture is a victorious king marching into his own city. Like the, the, the picture is, here's someone who, who has won the battle. Right? So Jesus wins. Uh, and then what does we say here in verse 8? Paul says, and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, we don't have, we're not going to read it this morning. But in Psalm 68, it does not say this. Psalm 68 says what? It says that he receives gifts from men. Like he's a victorious king, and so what is the response of the people for this king who has won the battle is that they would give him gifts. And yet Paul says here that this victorious king, this risen Savior, the one who ascends on high, what does he do is he gives gifts. Like as, as someone who would be growing up in it, if you grew up in Hebrew culture, you read the, like this would immediately stand out to you. Like there's, there's something different about this kingdom than maybe the Old Testament idea of kingdom and what we thought then. Like there's something different here. Jesus isn't coming to receive gifts. Jesus actually came and he ascended and he did all these things. Why? So that he might give gifts. Okay, why does he give gifts? We're going to get there in just a second. Okay, verse 9. We're still in this, uh, what do we do with this? Let's not argue over it, but we'll try to explain it. Verse 9. Now this expression, right? Verse 8, he ascended on high. 
Now I said, Paul's going to go down this rabbit trail a little bit. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. We're going to look at that last phrase of verse 10 before we dive into verse 9. This, this phrase that he might fill all things is what? That all of the universe would dis- declare his glory. Like here's a God, here's a Savior who is risen again, who is ascended up into heaven, talks about even higher than heaven, all these things. But what's the picture? The picture is here's a risen Savior who's full of glory and his glory fills the universe. Like there's nowhere in this universe that God's glory is not presently shining. So, so we would look at this and we say, man, he is he's a victorious. He's so victorious. He's so glorious. He's so wonderful that he would take up the whole universe. Like everything is filled with his glory. Everything is, is filled with him. He might fill all things. Like that's how wonderful of a Savior, that's how beautiful of a Savior we serve. Okay? So, so again, victory, uh, glory, like, like this is the theme. This is the idea, okay? Now, this is the part that most of us want to know about. Verse 9, what does it mean then that he descended into the lower parts of the earth? Right? Like, like what does that mean? Okay? We're not going to stay here very long. Two ideas. Uh, here we go. One idea is that he descended all the way into hell. Uh, so he died. He goes to hell. What did he do in hell? Two ideas uh, of what happened in hell, where he descended. One is uh, he rescues people from Abraham's bosom. So Old Testament saints, some people would believe when they put their faith in Jesus, they died. They went to a different section of hell. Jesus goes down and rescues them. Okay, that's one thought. Okay, second idea. He would descend into hell. And what did he do in hell? First Peter talks about Jesus uh, preaching to the, the saints who are in prison. Saints? Uh, to the, it's, it's a word for angels, uh, in, in, in prison, right? So that goes back to Genesis 6. We don't have all the time for that. But he went and preached victory to the enemy. Okay, so he goes to hell. There's these uh, demons in prison. We'll explain that some other time. But he preaches victory. Okay, so that's, that's one interpretation, though, that this descended to lower parts of the earth is he's in hell. And he's do, either rescuing people, which would be this idea of taking captives captive, you want to go back to that, uh, or preaching to these demons in prison, uh, which we're not going to explain. Okay, so that's one interpretation. Second interpretation, I will tell you this is the one I believe um, he descended is what? It's Philippians 2. He put on flesh. He came to earth and he died and was buried. He was in the tomb and he rose up uh, three days later. Like we celebrated that last week. We celebrate that every week. Right? So, so in my mind, what is this pastor saying? What is Paul getting at? He's saying he ascended. Well, well that's great, but we got to remember what he also did. Like, he also conquered sin, death, and hell. Like, he went to the lower parts of the earth. He was buried. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that there's a, a ruler, there's a, there's a uh, leader, the head of the church, the one who started the church, this new temple, like Jesus. He's victorious. And what did he do? He conquered sin, death, and hell, and he ascended back up to heaven so that all the kingdom, all the universe might be full of his glory. Right? So that's the idea. Get this big picture of what Jesus has done and what he is still doing and his glory and all these things. And so we take that all the way back to verse 7. We have received grace, or we could say we have received gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. Like it should blow our mind that we have received a gift from Jesus Christ. Like if we can understand what Paul's trying to get at in verses 8 through 10 and how marvelous and how victorious and how glorious the Savior is, then it would blow our minds away that he's going to give us a gift. Like, like go back to Psalm 68. Jesus, we should be giving you the gift. We should, be, we, we should be praising you. We should be giving you gifts. We should be giving our lives back to you. And yet somewhere in this, you're saying, no, I'm going to build my kingdom through my people, this new temple, and how we're going to do that, we're going to do that by giving them gifts. And what does he say back in verse 7? 
Each one has been given grace. Each one of you has been given a gift. Right? So, so we're going to see in just a second that not every gift is the same. We all don't have the same gift. So what does that mean? It means there's diversity in our unity. Like we all don't, we don't get saved and we all don't just dress alike. We don't get saved and we all, you know, have to get the same tattoo. We don't get saved and do the same exact thing. Like, no, there's some sort of diversity and yet there's still unity. Like all through Ephesians 1 through 3, what has it been? Unity, unity, unity. Now all of a sudden there's a little bit of diversity. Okay, we've already read the passage. You know what's coming. There's, the word unity is coming back in just a little bit. Right? But what is this saying? It's saying if we get a grand picture of who Jesus is, and it's this Jesus, it's this risen Savior, it's this one who has ascended into heaven, who's, who's, the, whose glory fills the whole universe. Like, he's the one who has given us gifts. Okay, so let's just stop and think about that. Like, how many times have we thought about our spiritual gift, maybe not as much as we should, but how many times have we stopped and think about our spiritual gift and think maybe God got it wrong? Like, you're building your kingdom, you're building your church, you're the one over this new temple that's made of people and, and not stone and, and rock and whatever else. Like, you created this universe, your glory fills the entire universe, and I'm going to come to you, the one who conquered sin, death, and hell, and I'm going to come to you and be like, meh, maybe I would have been better with this spiritual gift. Right? Like, like I think that's where Paul's getting at. Like, like we're going to trust God that he's going to give good gifts. Right? What are some of these gifts? Verse 11. These are not all the gifts. Like, we could go to other passages. We're not going to do that this morning. We go to other passages that list other gifts. Romans has that. 1 Corinthians has that. A couple of other places. Uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Peter talks about uh, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Like, he just breaks it into two categories. Uh, anyway, there's a lot of gifts. We're not going through all of them. We're not going through even these here this morning. But we're just, verse 11. Right? He gives gifts. What are some of the gifts that he's given to this early church in Ephesus? Right? He gave some as apostles, he gave some as prophets, he gave some as evangelists, he gave some as pastors and teachers. Okay, what do we see in common about this list? Uh, they're all some sort of leadership, they're all some sort of speaking. Some of you right now are praising God that this is not your gift. Like, like leadership, speaking in front of people, that you're, you're praising God. God, I'm glad I don't have that gift. Right? But he's given some, not all. He's given some, uh, some sort of leadership skills and some sort of preaching and teaching skills. I will just say this, just quick note. Uh, I don't, if you have the gift of preaching and teaching, that does not mean you have the leadership skill. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But don't feel like so often in church history, if you can preach, then, then you must be the good leader of the church, and there's some truth to that. But it doesn't mean that you were given the gift of some of these other guys, right? So it's a whole body working together, right? That's the picture. Anyway, let's keep going. Why did he give gifts? Right? Verse 7, he's given everybody a gift. Verse 11, he's given these specific gifts. And in this context, for this church, why did he give these gifts? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. That word equipping is, is the idea of perfecting or growing. So, so there's been gifts given to the church that some of these people would have, and they were, as they would use the gift, what is the result? The result is the people in the church would grow. There would be maturity in the church. Okay, we're going to see that idea keep coming forth in just a little bit. Now, the way that the Greek is structured, uh, to my understanding, he says that these gifts were given for the equipping of the saints. Now, this next phrase is, say, is going to say, for the work of service. Okay, so from my understanding, this isn't going all the way back to the gifts. This is going back to the saints. So as the saints would be equipped and the saints would mature and the saints would grow, what does that mean? It means that they are now going to go do this work of service. Some of your translations will say the work of ministry. That word, their service, ministry, whatever your translation may say, is the same word we would translate deacon. Like you are going to do the work of a servant. 
Okay, so, so just a little, a little bit of, of clarification, and then let's dive in on that topic. Uh, if we believe, this is what I believe, that I am a member of this church first and foremost, and that God has given me a gift of, of preaching and teaching, but first I'm a member who's just been given a gift, just like everybody else in the room has been given a gift. So when it refers there in verse 12 to the equipping of the saints, that somehow other people in this room who have a gift of preaching and teaching and, or, or some of these other gifts is going to be for my benefit, it's going to be for our benefit, but I am a member of this church. I am one of the saints. So when it says, when I say uh, that, that according to the Greek, my understanding, that for the work of service is going back to the, the equipping of the saints. So the saints are equipped. They do more service. They do better service, however you want to interpret that. I'm part of that. Why? Because I'm one of the saints first and foremost. So this is not a, hey, here's all these guys with these gifts, and all they have to do is talk to people on Sunday morning, and then they don't do the work of service. Like, that's not what we're saying. Like, I'm part of it. I'm part of this body. I'm, I'm more excited, I don't know if I can say this, but I'm more excited to be known as a member of gospel community than I am to be the pastor of gospel community. Like, like to be your brothers and sisters of the Lord is, is a greater joy to me at times, I, I don't know if I can say this clearly, than it is to say that I'm just the pastor of a church. Right? Anyway, let's talk about this work of service. There's a couple ways that, that we can think about this. And, and as I say this, one of them might sound really weird, but I feel like it happens all the time. Where does this work of service take place? Right? Like, like if we're going to see God gives gifts on purpose, like his glory fills the universe, he's the risen Savior, he's going to give gifts to build his church, and he gives gifts so that people might be mature, so that they would go do works of service, works of ministry. Where does that take place? And we, I don't know, maybe we think of wherever. Okay, two thoughts. One is that it happens in the church. Right? So, so my work of service, and I'm, I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is how churches sometimes think. My work of service becomes what? I held the door for the visitor who walked in this morning. I handed out a bulletin. We don't have bulletins, so that can't be your work of service here. But like I handed out the bulletin. I sang in the choir. I played the piano, which we've done none of that this morning. I mean, Joel played the guitar, so that's close. Right? And, and so all of a sudden it becomes, we have to add program after program after program so that people have a place to serve. Like, well, if I'm going to be mature, I have to serve. And so if I have to serve, I'm going to serve in the church, which in their mind means Sunday morning, uh, some sort of service. So we got a kid's ministry. We got a computer in the back. You could preach or you could lead music. So, so that's four opportunities that you can maybe do some work of service. And so I don't think that's what Paul getting at. I don't think anyone in the early church was like, oh, sweet, sign me up for a greeter. Right? And we can use greeters, and I'm not saying they're a bad thing. But like the work of service isn't, in my mind, happening in the service on Sunday morning. It can. I'm not saying it doesn't. But there's this idea that there's this work of service that's going to take place outside of this building. There's a work of service that's going to take place Monday morning through Saturday night, just as much as it takes place on Sunday. So then what does that look like for a work of service? Let's not be too spiritual. This work of service is, is watering your neighbor's bushes when they're out of town. Like We just got asked to do that. Cool. We'd love to water your bushes. He's stuck in another country. Like he can't even get back to America right now. Yeah, we'll water your bushes for you. Like, like what does it look like to, to do a work of service uh, right now in my world? I, I'm preaching the gospel to myself so I don't lose it and lo- ruin a testimony while I'm a little league coach. Right? Like I need gifts of the church to mature me so that I can be a light in, on, on Saturday morning when some other coach is losing his mind. And I don't want to lose my testimony. Right, like a work of service is you going to your office and being a good coworker. You're being a good neighbor. You're going to be a good parent. Out, like, like, what you do every day is is, is now turning into a work of service. 
Right? And so, so God, doesn't, God doesn't get things wrong, right? He, did, he didn't get it wrong that I'm coaching this little league team. He didn't get it wrong that we have this neighbor. We didn't get it wrong that you're in Sarasota right now and that you get the opportunity to serve people in this community in differing ways so that the gospel might go forth. So in my mind, he's saying what? I've given gifts to the church so the church might become more mature. And what's one of the marks of a growing, maturing church is that they get more involved in ministry, not less. I know some guys who, and I just... I know some guys who get real smart, real brainiac. They know everything about the Bible, and yet I don't see them serving. And I think maturity should be more serving, not less. As we grow in our faith, it should be more serving our neighbors, not less serving our neighbor. More works of service, not less. Right? Okay, let's keep going. What is, uh, so we're going to equip the saints. Uh, as the saints are equipped, including me, including pastors, including leadership, what is going to happen is we're all going to be more involved in this work of service, this work of ministry, in and around our communities for the sake of the gospel. Okay, as we are, are on mission together, if you want to word it that way, what's the result of that? The building up of the body of Christ. The encouragement of one another. Like, you're doing this work of service, I can do my work of service. You're reaching your neighborhood, I can reach my neighborhood. You're serving in this way, I can serve in this way. Like, like we can do this together. And there's this encouraging of one another to get more plugged in. And I feel like there's just this cycle that keeps going. Like, like gifts are being given so that we would grow. And as we grow, we could get plugged into service. As we get plugged into service, more people are getting plugged into service, which makes us want to know more about God even more. And we just keep the cycle going of growth and getting involved in, in our neighborhoods and seeing the body of Christ being built up. Right, verse 13, until, like, <laughs> we're going to do this. Like, this is going to be the cycle of the life of the church until when? Until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature man, to the measure of the stature which, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying we get to do this until Christ comes back. We're going to do this until we look like Jesus. So here's the mission of the church, right? From now until Christ returns, this is the mission of the church. We're going to equip, we're going to serve, and we're going to build each other up. Right? What's the result of that cycle that we would continue to go down? Verse 13. Right? What's the cycle? Is this unity. Right? So, so we talked unity, unity, unity throughout the whole first three chapters of Ephesians. And then what does he say? In, in chapter 4, verse 7, he introduces this, this like new thing. Like here's an individual aspect of, of the Christian life that we haven't talked about at all in Ephesians. And yet he says even your individual aspect and your differing gifts do what? They bring unity of, of faith. They bring the unity of the body of Christ. Right? So, so we can say, are we using the gifts that God has given this church properly? Like, that's a great question to ask. What's one of the ways we can know if we are? One of the ways we can know if we're using these gifts properly is, is there unity? Right? There's no unity. Then that is not God's fault. He didn't give us the wrong gift. He didn't not give us a gift. No, if we're believers, we've been given a gift. So then are we using our gifts correctly? Because if we are, I think there's going to be unity. Second thing, if we are using our gifts correctly, what is it going to be? There's going to be this knowledge of the Son of God. Like we're going to grow in our love for the Word of God. We're going to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God. We're going to grow in this like experience. Like, like I don't just know it in my brain, but, I, but I'm living it out. It's becoming part of my life. I don't, I don't know how true this is. I've heard it from a pastor on his podcast. Uh, so I'm just going to quote uh, Robbie Gallaty here real quick. Uh, but he talked about in Hebrew culture, you couldn't claim you knew something unless it really changed your life. Right? Like, like if you said, I know, and you gave some crazy science experiment thing, that, that, you know, equation that no one knows about, but yet you didn't really, you couldn't do it, you didn't know how it worked, you, did, you just kind of knew the, the algorithm or whatever, he would say you didn't know it. And so, so in the Christian life, he says, you can say you know Jesus, you can say you know these things, but yet if, you don't, if it hasn't changed your life, they would look at you and be like, yeah, you don't really know him. Right? Like, that's the picture here. 
Right? We're going we're gonna to have unity and we're going to help each other know the Son of God more and more, which what? Which brings maturity to a mature man. Like, like it's not just more head knowledge, but it's changing our lives. It's making us look more and more like Jesus. And once again, what's the end goal? The end goal is that we'd be the fullness of Christ. What is that? That we would look like Him. Right? That's the point. So, so one major idea of why do we have gifts? We have gifts in the church that we might look more and more like Jesus Christ. But notice what he says there, beginning in verse 13. Right back, and then we'll keep going. What does he say in verse 13? Verse 7, each one of us. Verse 13, until we all. Like, thank you, New American Standard, for, for putting all. We all. Like, all y'all, except Paul's putting himself in it now. So we all. Right? Like, like who's going to look like Jesus at the end of this? Us as individuals? Yeah, hopefully. But who's going to look like Jesus? The whole church. Together, corporately, the gospel made visible. Like, that's what the goal is here. That my individual gift, given to me for God, would affect everybody in this church, not just me. It would make the church look more and more like Jesus, not just an individual. Right? Verse 14, we're going to see the same thing. As a result, we, us, the body, what are we? We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. Okay, so what's the result of maturity? What's the result of looking more and more like Jesus? What's the result of knowledge of the Son of God is that we can sniff out, we can see false doctrine coming our way. Right? If we, could, we have stories, like all of us probably have stories of being in a church or knowing of a church in town or this or that growing up where a church just gave in to some sort of false doctrine. Right? And what does Paul say? He says, because of the gifts that Jesus is giving to his church, the church is going to be more and more mature. And as the church is more and more mature, what is one of the results is that we're not going to give in to these false doctrines. We're not going to talk a lot about false doctrines this morning. I just want to say this. And Austin's not here. Austin, if you listen to it on the podcast, you know, thank you. Uh, one of the greatest ways, I think, right now, false doctrines coming into the church is through music. One of two ways. One, the song itself is real, real, sounds good, music sounds good, rhythm, beat, whatever you want to say, makes up music. We're not going to argue about that. Uh, but whatever makes up the music, the melody, uh, sounds really good, and yet the words are awful. But we play it on Christian radio, so therefore it in, comes into the church, and it's, it's not Christian. And it's like we're singing to somebody, but we're not singing to Jesus because this isn't about him. So, so just... Fair warning, right? Like, we want to, music that we sing, I praise God for Austin and for Joel and others who have helped with music. Okay? Second way that I've seen music uh, bring in false doctrine is that we fall so in love with one group. And I'm not going to name groups this morning, but we fall so in love with one group. And then we find out more and more about the group, like, like the guy leading it's not even a believer. Or the guy who writes the song is not, not saved. Or whatever it is. And it's like there's something else going on here. There's something else that this group that, that they're, they're at work in. Uh, and I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of their teaching. And yet, what we've seen is churches being confronted with the truth of what this group stands for and saying, yeah, but we like their music. So sure, there's some false gospel. Sure, there's prosperity gospel. Sure, there's something else mixed into their doctrine. But this is a good song. And, and that just bothers me because I feel like... We, we, I don't want to support that. I don't want to support a false teacher. Right? And so it's just, we, there's a lot of ways that the devil, uh, there's a lot of ways that, that he's trying to destroy the church. And I think, I think music's one of them today. Right? We can make a long list of other ways uh, that false doctrine would come into our church. But what's the point? The point is this. As, as we use our gifts, as we grow in our knowledge of God, we become less and less likely to give in to false doctrine. Okay, so we don't want to do false doctrine, right? Verse uh, 14, we don't want this trickery of men. We don't want craftiness and deceitful scheming. What do we want? Verse 15, we want this. We want speaking the truth in love. 
Okay, what does speaking the truth and love accomplish? It accomplishes that we would grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So again, verse 15, we're going to speak the truth and love. Why? So that other people might look more and more like Jesus. Okay, this is not, this is going to break down a little bit. I understand it's going to break down, but uh, we're going to go with it anyway. Some of us are very good at truth, but we stink at love. Right? We can tell somebody that they're wrong. We can tell somebody, we can argue till the cows come home about how stupid their belief is right now and how wrong they're living. And we can belittle them and make them feel really dumb and make us feel really smart. And man, everything I said was true. Like, look how truthful I am. And yet we miss the whole part of being about in love. Right? And there's another aspect, though, that, that this is not really loving. So this is a big part of where it breaks down. But there's this other aspect. Like, I just love them too much. I couldn't tell them. Like, oh, I just, I, I really like being their friend. I, I like sitting next to them in church, whatever it is. Like, I just I can't bring myself to, like, point out their error, point out their sin, point out their false doctrine, point out whatever's going on. And so I'm just going to, yeah, not really be, I'm just, just going to stand up. Right? And so some of us would claim truth. I'm like, oh, man, truth. And some of us would claim to be more on a loving side, even though we can argue that's not really love, uh, but, like, to be more on that side. And what is Paul saying? He's saying mark of maturity is that we're not going to give them a false doctrine, but what are we going to do? We're going to speak the truth, but we're going to do so in love. Why? So the end result is that this person who's hearing, whether it's a church or an individual, would look more and more like Jesus. All right, so, so if you leave a conversation and all you do is speak truth and the person hates your guts, I'm going to say you probably didn't accomplish the mission. Like if they, they think, man, if that's what Jesus is like, I don't want any part of that. If all it is is getting beat up and being told how wrong I am, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not interested in that. Right? But if we can speak the truth in love in such a way that they want more of Jesus, mission accomplished. Right? That's, that's the goal. That's maturity. That's what uh, Paul's wanting from this church. Verse 16, here as we end. Uh, from whom, that's referring back to Christ in verse 15. So if Jesus, from whom the, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Okay, what is, he, what is Paul saying? This is a beautiful statement, I feel like. Verse 16, though from whom the whole body being fitted and held together. Who's holding this church together? Who's holding gospel community of Sarasota together? Not me. Right? Praise God, it's not me. Like, who's holding this local body together? It's Jesus Christ. Who's holding this universal, collective, new temple of, of believers all across this globe that we get to be a part of praying for and learning more about on Friday night? Like, like who's doing that? It's Jesus Christ. It's this one all the way back in verse 8 and 9 and 10 that has ascended, that conquered sin, death, and hell. It's the victorious king over the whole universe. And what is he doing? He's holding together his church. I've said this before. It is a marvel that the church has lasted 2,000 years. Hear the stories about, like, forget the outside pressure of people wanting to get rid of church. Just the stories of churches, like people inside the church, fighting and bickering. Like, it's a marvel that church still exists 2,000 years later. Right? But it's not because of man's effort. It's because Christ is holding together his church. Look what else it says. Being fitted and, and held together by every, uh, every joint supplies. Like, this picture of fitting. God, God doesn't just randomly give gifts out. Like, like, there's no accident you're here this morning. There's no accident you're part of this church. Those of you who have been here for a while, like, like that's not an accident. God placed you here for the growing of his kingdom, for the growing of this new temple. You're being fitted individually with your gifts and your background and your story to be here, to be part of this local body as the gospel would go forth. Right? According to the proper working of each individual part. Like so often we think the church and everything that's going on has, has so much to do with me or for this one person, yet what is, what is Paul saying? He says, no, it has all to do with Jesus. 
He's the one who's bringing in the people. He's the one who's building the church. He's the one who's giving gifts, right? It's Jesus who causes the growth of the body. So the last part of verse 16 is, like, we are so tempted to do what? We're so tempted to, to do it our way. Like, man, if we just had better social media, if we just had better outreach, if we just had more private jets, if we just had whatever, like, all of a sudden we have a greater church, and yet it's Jesus who builds the church. Instagram doesn't build our church. Money doesn't build our church. Jesus builds the church. And notice, notice the last thing he says here. He causes the growth of the body for the building up of what? Of itself in love. We talked about unity. We talked about knowing God. We talked about this mark of maturity. What's the last mark that, that Paul's going to give a church that is using their gifts for the glory of God, uh, using their gifts for maturity and growth? The last mark here is what? Love. There's a church that does not love one another. Like, if you walk into church, it's like, man, those people, they just don't love each other. There's just no love in that church. They're not together. There's no unity. Then what do we go back to? We go all the way back to Ephesians 4, 7. Like, like you're not using the gifts that God's given you. Maybe you're using them, but you're using them for your own glory. You're using them for something else. Like, we are using our gifts that God has given us for the building up of this church. Like, right here, we, this local body, God has given each one of us in this room a gift so that we might build up the person sitting next to us. Right? What's even cooler, or I mean, it's just as cool, I guess, is, is that God's given you a gift. Why? So that we can be a part of this new temple and build that new temple. Not just here in Sarasota, but around the globe. Like, we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of, the, of a king who is going to one day rule and reign, like, perfectly forever. Like, we're a part of that. And he's the one who's giving gifts, so let's use them, right? Let's, let's use them to further his kingdom. Let's use them to build up the body of Christ. Let's use them to, to help each other grow and know him more and more and fall more and more in love with him. Let's use these gifts that God has given us for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you that you don't leave us after our salvation. You don't just you don't save us and then help, just hope we figure it out on our own. You don't, you don't save us and then make us do everything else in our own strength. But God, you continue to give grace. God, you give gifts. You give specific gifts to specific people. You give the right gift to specific people. So that, you, that, that they, through their gift, through your power, through your grace, might, might bring um, benefit, might bring encouragement, might bring growth to this local church. So God, I pray that you'd help us to use our gifts. Help us to know what they are. Help us to use them. Help us to, to use our gifts to further your glory. God, we are ashamed to think that there are probably times when, when we doubt that you got this right. God, there, there's probably times that we doubt you got the whole idea of church right. That you're going you're gonna to further your kingdom through broken people, through sinful people, and you're going to do it by giving them gifts. God, there are times when that's hard to believe that your kingdom is going to go forth with that plan. And yet, God, we were given this morning this beautiful, beautiful picture that you are the risen Savior. You're the one who has conquered sin, death, and hell. You are victorious. And, and if this is your plan, then God, help us to be a part of it. Help us to buy into that. Help us to use these gifts for your glory in ways that we cannot even imagine. So God, we ask that you would build this church. We ask that you would build your church. Not just in Sarasota, but around this globe. God, may the gospel go forth this morning. May it go forth this week. Uh, may it go forth at a baptism tonight. God, we beg of you to continue to build your new temple of, of people from all tongues, tribes, and nations. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.